Right, so we're going to jump into Galatians. Before we get to Galatians, open your Bible to Acts um, 13. So we'll start by kind of piecing some things together in the story of Acts, and then we'll get to Galatians um, a little bit later. Okay, those handouts are coming around. Um, while you're getting that, Acts chapter 13. Um, And we'll kind of jump through a bunch of things there in Acts. Um, So let's start by talking about uh, Galatia a little bit. So we'll we'll read Acts in a second so you can kind of read how this plays out. Um, But the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, was written to churches in Galatia. And Galatia is not a city, it's a region. So do you see up here on the map um, where Galatia is? So that kind of stretch, it's in where modern-day Turkey is, part of Turkey. Um, yeah, so there's Galatia. It's a region, not a city. So when this church is written to the Galatians, it's written to a few different places probably and would have been passed around. Um, Galatia was known to be a very Roman loyal place. So they were kind of pretty high on the we are Roman citizens. They they weren't, you know, ethnically Roman, but really latched on to that citizenship and that um, rule when the Roman Empire was expanding. Um, there's, there's a inscription somewhere in Galatia that is almost like a little diary excerpt from a diary almost of from Augustus Caesar Augustus um, who is the second Roman emperor after Julius um, where he there's nothing particularly you know noteworthy about what he says it's mostly just some things of like I went and did this and I went and did this and it's like yeah he did do those things but they had it in Galatia and it was like he so it was an important place for him it was an important place for the Romans the Galatians would have been proud of it it was like we are one of the places where Augustus has put his stamp. We are one of the places that reveres him. We are one of the places that publicly honors him. So really proud of their Roman heritage. So that's going to be um, a major thing uh, for Paul as he goes through that region. Um, The date that we think Galatians was written, like I've told you before, I'm kind of following the dating in the back of your Paul book. Not everybody sees it that way. There's a few different options for these books. But you've got to kind of pick one lane and at least be internally consistent. So let's explore the Paul um, book's uh, dating. So I think the date is somewhere around 48, um, if we go with that dating. Um, And if it helps you, Acts 9 happened somewhere around 33 AD, you know, pretty close to the time of Jesus. So it's been about 15 years. So if you can remember kind of that time of obscurity in Paul's life, you know, he has that conversion in Acts chapter 9. That's what happens in Acts 9, by the way, is Saul is converted and sees Jesus, changes his whole life, um, commits to Christianity, stops killing Christians and starts being one of them. Um, that happens around 33 AD. Then he's got those years of obscurity, the years of building his ministry, the years where he's in Arabia, the time when he's back in Tarsus, and he's kind of developing who he is, right? Um, and then about 15 years is when he writes Galatians. So some other travel happens in there. His first missionary journey and second missionary journey happen right in that time period. So let's look then at, um, well, let me give you your fill in the blanks and then go in order so then we look at Acts. So the situation generally here in um, the letters to the Galatians is Jews trying to convince Gentiles that they need to become Jews in order to be Christians. Um, There's more going on. Obviously, there's always detail. There's always nuance. But this is kind of the big picture thing that's going to inform Galatians. Jews trying to convince Gentiles that they need to become Jews in order to be Christians. Um, so what, a lot of what Paul's going to talk about in Galatians, and we'll see it when we flip through, is like, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow these laws. Who convinced you that you have to add all this stuff? I told you you were free. 
And then he's going to theologically do some stuff that's similar to what he did in Romans. With like, let's look at Abraham and how this promise developed so we can trace and find ourselves in it. Because Paul is really eager to say, you can be Jew, Gentile, whatever. Christ is the unifier. So you don't have to bring either ethnicity or either law system. You come to Christ and he changes the whole picture. So that's kind of the, the major uh, thrust of Galatians. So now let's look at Acts 13, 14 and really up into 15 and kind of skim through that. Um, so you can get a sense of um, how this all works. So starting at the beginning of chapter 13, um, this passage isn't particularly important for Galatians, but it's really important in Acts and in ministry overall. So the beginning of chapter 13, um, it says in, um, let's see, let me go up a little bit earlier to make sure I know where we are here. Um, Um, so chapter 13, verse 1. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they would fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Um, so this is important because it's kind of the beginning of the missionary journeys that um, Saul, Paul, goes on. If you look up at 12... Um, verse 25, um, it says, When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, uh, taking with them John, also called Mark. So Paul and Barnabas together, they're doing this mission stuff. I don't know if that's like they were doing something before that, and then they go to Jerusalem and figure out something else, or if this is one of those, like, Luke is kind of telling the story, and, like, Paul and Barnabas finish this thing. Oh, by the way, let me tell you that story of how that happened. Does that make sense? So it's like this is, chapter 13 is the beginning of Paul and Barnabas, the appointed, ordained missionaries to go out and do their work. Um, this is the most significant passage in the New Testament that talks about ordination. Like if you think about ordination or wanting to be ordained, which is something you guys should, I think, think about, pray about, consider. Um, there's nothing, you know, it is really important, but it's also not like a you have to kind of thing. It's, it's basically just this, a church saying, hey, we see calling in you, and you saying, yes, I feel called. I'm giving my life to this work, like all my effort, all my time. Please set me apart for it. Um, the language that we used at my ordination, I remember Mark Scott said, today you're burning all other vocational bridges to preach the gospel. I think that's kind of what's happening here, is Paul and Barnabas saying, like, we are giving everything we can to do this. Now, they still made tents because they needed money, you know, they needed stuff to do. But it's like they're living off of people sending them. They're living off of preaching and teaching. That's what they set their lives um, apart to do. So there's other passages in the New Testament that hint at it a little bit, or Paul talks about Timothy receiving a gift in the laying on of hands. That's kind of like ordination, but this is the most specific, uh, most thorough a church says, we see calling in you. The people say, yes, I agree, and they send them off together. Um, so that's why this passage is significant. So they start off on the first missionary journey. You can see on this map, it's a little hard to see the different lines. So they start here in Antioch. You see that? And then if you look later in chapter 13, see how they go to Cyprus. If you look at chapter 13, verse 4, is where they sail. So you can kind of follow that dotted line around, and that's where they go on the first missionary journey. Travel around a little bit up into Galatia, right? And then end up coming back to Antioch. Um, and there's two different Antiochs in Acts. So there's um, what's called Syrian Antioch. Usually it's just called Antioch or Antioch in Syria. Um, but then there's also Pisidian Antioch, Antioch and Pisidia. So sometimes it's confusing where you're like, wait, I thought they just left Antioch and now they're in Antioch. Uh, that's why. So there's two of them. But this is kind of Paul and Barnabas's home base, home church, 
Syrian Antioch. So that's where they leave from. Um, and you can kind of follow that missionary journey around. Um, they, so they go to um, Pisidian Antioch, you see, in the middle of chapter 13. Um, and then they go to Iconium in chapter 14, you see that? So still in Galatia, if you're kind of flipping through Acts. Lystra and Derby, starting in chapter 14, verse 8. Um, here's what I want to draw your attention to, a couple little passages that, that paint the picture of why we're looking at Acts before we get into Galatians, because I think it'll help you feel what Paul was sensing as he's writing back to them a little bit later. So he does this missionary journey, but then he writes to them a little bit after he gets back. So he travels, visits them, writes to them later. But look at chapter 14, um, verses 1 through 2, as kind of a little snapshot into what it's like. At Iconium, it says, one of the cities in Galatia, right? At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. So that's where they start, because they know these people have the Scripture. So let's talk about how the Scripture is fulfilled in Christ. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. See that? So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, other with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. So they go into Lystra and Derbe, do their thing, preach, um, Amazing things happen, right? People are healed. Um, the um, people there, if you look in verse 11, think that the gods have come down and in the form of Paul and Barnabas. So they think that they're like Zeus and Hermes, and they're starting to worship them. Paul and Barnabas try to put a stop to it. Skim down to verse 19, so chapter 14, verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. So he'd been... Up here in Antioch, and then he went to Iconium, if you see the dotted line coming back. Now he's in Derby, and it says that some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. So they're so mad at him, they're following him to these other towns. Travel's not easy to do. So Paul's committed to it because he's preaching the gospel. They're committed to it because they want to stop him. That's how mad they are and how riled up they are. So they came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. Crazy. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. So he gets stoned and like goes back in. He's like, let's just stay here for tonight. I think it'll be okay. And then leaves. It's wild. Um, so then they end up going back home. That's kind of like, okay, we've preached. Wow, what a rush. <laughs> we survived. Now let's go home. So they sail home. Right after that, if you look at chapter um, 15, so um, the end of chapter, of, uh, chapter 14 and verse 28 um, it says, well, actually, first, let me show you this, because I have pictures. Do you have a sequel picture? Yes, Wait, yes. This, So, whatever they said at the very beginning, of, or the very end of t uh, chapter 12, was this, like, 13, 14, was this before Mark, uh, John Mark came along with him? Or is that, like, so it's like John Mark's with them through this? John Mark's with them. Okay, so it's not, it was chronologically, that's correct. Yeah, I think he's with them. Because if you look at when they split, it's in chapter 15, um, verse 36. You see that? Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued. So um, if you see, you see on this map the black dotted line, 
So what, what they're kind of suggesting here is that they went on this trip and kind of go here, and then here is where John Mark is like, yeah, I'm done with that, and leaves. And so Paul is mad about that. So when they're, they're back here and going to go on the second journey, and Barnabas is like, let's get Mark and do it again. And Paul's like, I'm not taking him. He quit. So, like, so he quit before they went through. Probably before they went through Galatia, but he's with them on that trip, but oh, no, he didn't okay. finish it. Okay, that's yeah. Okay. yeah, good question. That's good question. Yeah. Um, okay, so look at chapter fourteen, uh, verse twenty-four. It says after going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. Um, by the way, when it says, so they went into Pamphylia, that's when John Mark deserted them. So mm-hmm. it could have been there, it could have been before, because they, you know, it's hard to say exactly. Um, and then it says, when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they'd been committed to the grace of God for the work they'd now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together, reported all God had done through them, and how he'd opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So that's the end of the first missionary journey. They're back in Antioch, their home church, hanging out. When it says Italia in my Bible, that's modern-day Antalya in Turkey, which is this place, where I was a little bit ago. So it's still, like, it's a port in Turkey. It's beautiful. Um, they think that this might have been the boat Paul used. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but it's beautiful, like, the kind of the cliffs up there that they build around, and it's still used for boats. Um, Here's another view at it, looking out wow. into the Mediterranean. Isn't that pretty? So Paul would have been, I mean, like this is where the port is. So it may not have been this exact spot, but somewhere along this stretch of coast mm-hmm. is where Paul gets on a boat and sails back um, to Antioch. Um, again, it's just beautiful. So over here, you can't really tell from this picture, but that's like a beach. These are all resort hotels now. So it's like it's that kind of beautiful, that kind of weather. There's, there are like people out under umbrellas on the beach. Um, this is like a view out into the mountains across across the sea. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. Somebody kayaking. Um, so this is where he was. This is where he set sail from and goes back to goes back home. So um, and I think of and most of this is true, but we think of Paul's missionary journeys and he's like being beaten and being imprisoned and being stoned and you know like crazy hard difficult and that's I think the most of it. But there's also probably something similar to what we have you know some people um do their mission work and go to the hardest places even there like turkey's a hard place even there there's beauty but i think for paul it's like we're gonna go do hard things whatever it takes risking everything maybe be imprisoned maybe they stay today in italia wouldn't you you know like there's some uh, mission work there's some stuff we do it's like it's a cool place to go you don't just go places that are 100 percent miserable it's like, these are good places, and there's probably a lot happening. Like, I bet Paul is probably resting, probably recovering, probably has to stay there at least a little bit. There's probably also a lot of people there. This is kind of a crossroads of, you know, this is a port city that was easy to get to and around the whole Mediterranean area. It's probably even strategic missionally. So I bet Paul is recuperating, probably likes the idea that it's an international crossroads, um, but it would have been a beautiful place for him to be for a while. Isn't that cool? to get to see what it's like. Um, So that's where he was in Italia. So in chapter 15, um, they have the Jerusalem Council, a significant chapter in Acts. We talked about it a little bit. But this is when the apostles in Jerusalem start hearing, there's all these Gentile people becoming Christians, 
what are we going to do about that? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to become Jewish? How are we going to handle this? Paul and Barnabas hear about it and are like, we have opinions. So they go to Jerusalem and are part of the conversation to where they end up saying, okay, you don't have to become Jewish. Those things were Jewish practice that got you to God. God has now changed the equation in Jesus. So let's send that letter out. So they send Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch with a letter saying, this is how we're going to move forward from here. Does that make sense? So that all is in chapter 15, coming right off the heels of Paul's ministry, initial ministry in Galatia, where all the Jews are mad at him, the cities are divided, the Gentiles are worked up, they're trying to kill him. Then the church back in Jerusalem says, we are going to purposely make this accessible to Gentiles. That's what's happened on the heels of this. Then um, we read real quick at the end of chapter 15, Paul says, let's go back and visit all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord. So that's Galatia again, right? So um, back to our map here. Um, The second missionary journey is that solid line, if you see that. So he's down in Jerusalem because he goes there for the council. And then, uh, well, actually, he's, yeah, so he's up here in Antioch because he's gone from the council up. Then he travels back through all these places, checking on them again. And that's the second missionary journey. But that time, he ends up going way further up here and then down through Greece and some of those places. So that's the second missionary journey. Um, But that starts in chapter 16. Um, and on. And that's where he goes to Philippi, which we'll talk about later today. Um, so, I need this stuff. So now let's turn over to Galatians and talk a little bit more specifically about Galatians. How but, do you think that's up? Um, a year or two. But then some of those places he stays a longer time. So like when he's in um, Ephesus Well, wait, he's in Ephesus the next time he stays longer. But most of this is pretty quick. He stays a little bit of time here. Um, but it's a year or two. Because he's kind of traveling around, doesn't stay super long most of those places. Um, okay. So, Galatians. We've said it's Jews trying to convince Gentiles that they need to become Jews in order to be Christians. We saw that background. You see the divide in those cities. Paul goes back through those cities. It's going to be similar kinds of experiences. There's division. Then later, he's going to hear about division ongoing, people being convinced to go back to their old way of things. And he's like, not, now is it not only me you know, believing this and preaching this to you, but I've got confirmation from the church. Like Peter and John voted on this. We agree. This is how it's going to be. So Paul's pretty worked up in Galatians. This is one of his earliest letters. This is one of his angriest letters. He's pretty feisty, um, but he's really serious about them not going back to the old thing that they should be liberated from. Um, so let's talk about some major themes, important features, and we'll look at um, passages as we go through along the way. The first one is Paul's authority. Paul's authority. Um, some of it he just flat goes to like, I'm jumping in on this and have hard things to say to you. But these are people he would have, like, he won them to Christ. You know, he spent a while with them, reasoning with them, teaching them, speaking with them, lived in some of their houses, probably. Um, so he jumps right in to confronting them for their false belief. Um, but he's also going to spend some time, starting in one eleven through the beginning of chapter 2, kind of telling his story. It's like a, a Paul retelling version of the story of Acts 9 through 12 or so. Of, like, what was it like when he was converted? What was it like when he started going into ministry. And he's going to tell them that story. Like, I heard the gospel. Um, it changed me. I went away for a while and studied, and God confirmed it in my heart. I didn't go get opinions from everybody else. I, I think he's trying to tell them, like, 
Nobody was like really clever and won me over. God revealed something to me. That's what I gave to you. So if somebody else is going to try to convince you of something, they're going to have to convince God because he convinced me. Does that make sense? So similar stuff that he gave in 1 Corinthians. But you remember in 1 Corinthians, it was a lot more like, you don't think I'm impressive? That's not what's important. In this one, it's like, you're wrong because I have an encounter with God. You need to listen to the truth. This is going to be bad for you. It's a different angle that he takes to kind of prove his authority. Um, but look at... Um, Look at verse chapter 1, verse 6 to get a feel for this a little bit. He just, after his like initial greeting, glory to God, glad I'm writing to you. Um, God is amazing. Verse 6, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and returning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. He's just like, okay, greeting out of the way. What are you doing? You know, he just jumps right into that. Um, and then look at verse 8. This is a good example of the kind of thing he's going to call them to. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. So that's him saying, like, I don't care who it is that came in with some fancy sounding argument. What I preached to you the first time is the truth. If somebody says something different than that, it's wrong. Um, and he's just like holding onto that tight. I'm looking at verse 10. I think this is a great verse. Uh, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. That'd be a good one for you to memorize. I think that's a good one. Um, that Paul gives that we can latch on to for our ministry life too. If I was still trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. When you said yes to serving him, you said yes to one master. People are going to have their opinions, and we should be kind, and we should care about them. But what they want us to do, what they think should be true, how you know, what they want us to massage out of the text is not what we're after. I'm not a servant of Christ if I'm a servant of you. I only have one master. It's a great one to memorize. If I were still trying to please men... I would not be a servant of Christ. Then starting in verse 11 is what I was talking about a second ago. I want you to know, brothers, the gospel I preached is not something man made up. And then he goes into that uh, whole story. Um, let's see. Uh, here is that section. We talked about this a little bit earlier. Chapter 2, verse 3, kind of continuing his flow of thought, is when he says, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Um, so he's kind of wrestling with that tension you read about in the N.T. Wright book, or if you haven't read it yet, you will, about why he might have done that differently with Timothy versus Titus. And that's an interesting thing to explore. Um, but Paul's not hiding from it. He's like, yeah, he wasn't circumcised because you don't have to be. Um, but earlier, it's like he, Paul was the one who said Timothy should be circumcised. So he's able to kind of navigate these things culturally as they need to be to make the mission move forward. Um, but theologically, he's committed to you don't have to do these Jewish customs in order for God to to approve of you. Um, so that's where that is uh, mentioned there in chapter 2, verse 3. Um, there's another verse here that I think is important to see. Um, look at verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8. Again, he's kind of saying, like, I, I am an apostle. I saw God. What I say is true. Um, he says, For God, who is at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, so like the pillars of the church, uh, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. That's Acts 15 stuff. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So he's like, hey, you guys are questioning my gospel. I'm telling you it's the truth. And Peter, James, and John agree. So if you want to argue with me, you're arguing with them. If you want to argue with all of us, you're arguing with God stop listening to false teaching. That's kind of what he's getting at. I have, the, I have their backing. We're all unified on this. Um, that's a big deal. But I love that phrase, even those reputed to be pillars. 
um, which I think is, for one, it's just cool to think about, cool phrasing. I think another good thing to lock away in our hearts, I would love to be able to be seen as a pillar. Now, these guys are a different thing. You know, there's like capital P pillars, like they are started the thing. Um, but I would love for that to be like thinking of a church leader, not not just as, you know, whatever else you might want to say, but to think like that's a pillar is firm. You can build on it. It's lasting. I'll show you pictures later today of Laodicea, and it's not the only place like this. You, you guys have seen ancient ruins. Pillars are huge and standing and strong and not moving. Um, I just think that's a great way to describe leaders, founders of a church, people carrying it forward. I think it's important. Um, okay, so that's kind of Paul's authority section. Is that making sense so far? Um, major thing here is the Jew-Gentile relationship. We saw that um, definitely leading up through the Acts passages. Um, a lot of Galatians, I mentioned this earlier, has some um, similar overtone to how Paul argues in Romans. Um, Galatians is going to use those words faithfulness and faithful and faith a lot. Same kind of concepts as Romans. This is a major dispute in the early church. Is Jews kind of, when they come to believe in Jesus, they're like, okay, we bring this whole heritage with us. And it's like, yeah, that's beautiful. You know, Paul in Philippians is going to say, I have the same heritage. I love it. Proud of it. That's not what saves you. So bring your heritage and then let Jesus have it. Um, but that's not the most important thing. So Jew Gentile thing is a big, big deal. In chapter 11, verse 14, uh, chapter 2, sorry, verse 11 and on, um, Paul talks about a dispute he had with Peter, um, where Peter's um, able to say, like, yeah, we believe Gentiles should be included, and that's great, and they don't have to follow the Jewish customs. But then Paul sees Peter following all the Jewish customs and excluding Gentiles, and Paul just calls him out on it. So to go from, like, those reputed to be pillars, they're the pillars of the church. They agreed with me. I saw him not acting in line with what he said he believed, and I didn't back down. That's how serious Paul is about it. So he, he goes from, like, we all agree, to then let me tell you how serious I am. That guy, the guy, wasn't doing it, and I challenged him. So I think kind of the implication there is, like, so Galatians, how do you think I'm going to treat you? The language is going to get harsher here if you can't come in line with the gospel. Um, so Paul's pretty pretty fired up about this. Um, look at chapter, I know we're skipping stuff. We'll kind of come back through and look at other things. Look at chapter 3, um, starting in verse 6. We won't go through all this because, again, this is a lot of overlap with Romans that we talked about before. I just want you to see it. So in chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. you remember that whole conversation? You can read about that in Genesis 15, um, Genesis 12. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. Not those who are Jewish, but those who believe, right, are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is a major biblical theological argument Paul's making. You don't have to become Jewish. You have to have faith in Christ and live under the faithfulness of Christ. Does that make sense? Following? I love that language where he says um, that God announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. Isn't that cool? I mean, he quotes there Genesis chapter 12 when he says, all nations will be blessed through you. Um, I think of Genesis 12 as like the great commission of the Old Testament. It's basically the same idea. Like go into all the world and tell everybody that Jesus died for them, you know. Genesis 12 is, I'm going to bless you so you can be a blessing. I'm giving you everything you need so you can show people who I am. It's the same idea. So I love this language here. God announced the gospel beforehand. It's pretty cool. Um, and that's Genesis 12. Um, okay, again, we could read on and on and on through that. You know how that would go. We're not going to. You understand. This is what Paul's doing in Galatians. 
Um, look at chapter 4, verse 21. This is a big deal. Um, it's another kind of biblical example Paul goes back to to make his point. Um, so chapter 4, verse 21, he's kind of continuing the same argument. So tell me, you who want to be under the law. So those of you Gentiles, either who are convinced by Jews, or those of you Jews who are so convinced you have to be Jewish law. Those of you who want to live under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? Don't you feel Paul being a little feisty? Like, you think the law is so great. You know what it says, right? Let's talk about it. Are you not aware of what the law says? It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, Paul says, for the women represent two covenants. Um, One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands from Mount Sinai in Arabia, corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she's in slavery with her children. Complicated. Paul has a lot to say. I'll summarize it in a minute. Um, But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she's our mother. Um, For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Who is Paul quoting that to refer to in this context? I know it's a confusing passage. Try to try to follow it. Who is the barren woman who bore no children, but who now has more children than anybody else? Sarah. Sarah, right? Do you, so you follow Paul a little bit. So he quotes an Isaiah passage, yeah. saying like God God operates in this way where He can bring blessing, bring something that didn't exist out of somebody that you didn't think He could. That's the promise we inherit. So then, what Paul's going to go on to say? Um, look at verse twenty-eight. Now you brothers, like Isaac are children of promise. He's talking to Jews and Gentiles there. So what, he's, what Paul's doing, this is like the theological lines he's drawing. This is, this is so good. It's confusing to read, but it's so good. What Paul is actually saying is, you Jewish people who love the law and are trying to convince everybody they have to be Jewish and follow these customs, the turn he's making is, actually, in the Abraham story, the, the child that Abraham had in the natural, fleshly, normal, human way of events was Ishmael, not Isaac, right? Does that, does that make sense? The one that was miraculous, God did something else with, that was Isaac. But the Jewish people would have claimed we come from the lineage of Isaac, which physically they did. What Paul is saying is, if you want to have a fleshly line and tie all of your things to the custom of the flesh, tie all of the things to the rules you can follow the ordinary way of like human life, you inherit God's blessing because of your ethnicity, then you actually are tracing your lineage figuratively through Ishmael, Paul says, which to Jews would have been so offensive. But then says, you, all my brothers, Jew and Gentile, you actually are in the lineage of Isaac because God uh, made Isaac alive miraculously. He did something that didn't make sense in fleshly terms and created spiritual children. And so now you Gentiles even inherit Isaac as your forefather. Do you, do you understand what he's doing? It's a little bit of a complicated argument the way he parses it out, but it's like he steps right on the toes of the Jews, invites the Gentiles in to inherit the promise of God, and kind of undoes that whole, we have the lineage of the blessed people. And Paul's like, yeah, when you believe in Christ, you're in the lineage of the blessed people. That's the, the entry gate now. Does that make sense? I think it's so good. So good. Okay. Um, so I wanted you to kind of feel that argument. Because when you read it, you're like, the Hagar and the Sinai and Arabia, and what is he talking about? That's what he's getting to. He just does it, I think, and he's brilliant in thinking through a different lens than we're used to. Um, so those are a big deal. Um, 
let's see, what do I want to draw your attention to? That may be it there. Um, let me go back a little bit, though, and point out one of the like most important, most uh, well-known, a couple of the most important well-known verses in Galatians. Um, one is chapter 2, verse 20. A lot of you guys may have this memorized. It's one of those like staple ones. If you don't have it memorized, it'd be a great one to like highlight or underline or write down an index card and keep with you or something. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Then look at this next verse. This next verse, I think, anchors it in the context. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So 2.20, I think, stands on its own really well. Memorize the heck out of it. Keep it with you always. It's deeply true of us. Um, the, The big thing that Paul is tying together here, like verse 19, he says, Through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. Remember, he's dealing with Jew Gentile tensions. And then he says, because I've been crucified with Christ, everything good about my flesh that I brought to the table because of my heritage is crucified with Christ. And I don't even live anymore. I just live through him. And then he says, I don't set aside the grace of God. What does that mean? I think he's saying, if I tried to say I was circumcised and I have the right lineage and I know my parents and I obey the law, then I'm doing it on my own. I'm not relying on grace. I need grace. If righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. So Christ is what defines all this. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Paul's whole line of thought, the Jew-Gentile thing, comes like really to bear on, how do I relate to God? It's only through Christ. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Um, so that's 2.20. Look at another um, great verse um, that's well-known, worth knowing. In chapter 3, verse 13. Um, again, he's doing this whole argument. He's just talked about Abraham. He's kind of building this whole, like, you guys need to figure out how to get along together, not based on the human things you can achieve. And he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Um, yeah, I think that's just a big verse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by saying, curse is everyone who's hung on a tree, which is a quote from Deuteronomy. So Paul's quoting Old Testament law where they said, if you're hung on a tree to die, then that means you're really cursed. And he's like, well, who did that? Jesus. Which means he went through a curse, the curse that everybody deserved. He took on in a public, shameful way so that he could break us free from the things that held us. So Paul quotes from the law to say that Jesus took on the law and defeated it. Paul's, I think, brilliant, right? Like all these like Old Testament things he's weaving through and we read sometimes like, man, it's hard to, sometimes it's hard to follow him the whole way because we're not as familiar with these passages as he is. Um, but I think that's a powerful thing he does is go back to an Old Testament law, shows how Jesus lived right into it and then walked out of the grave to say, the thing that was the biggest curse I beat. Mm-hmm. So side with me, you know, that was a big deal. If you guys don't know a song, I kind of became excited about this again recently. There's a song called Embracing Accusation by Shane and Shane that if you don't know, you should listen to. Um, just find it and take some time and listen. It's really good. And it's a, it's a slow build, but it's worth it. Um, but this verse is a, is a lot of it. It talks about like the curse that we experience because of our sin and the only way out of it. Um, but I would encourage you to check out that song. It might be, just be good for your soul. It's good for mine sometimes. Um, okay, the next uh, big thing. Uh, is freedom in Christ, your third bullet point there. Freedom in Christ. 
And again, this is largely, like to specifically tie it to context, is largely talking about you are free from needing to do circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, and food laws. You don't have to go back to Jewish custom. You're free from that. We now have new life in Christ. And I think a lot of times that we hear freedom in Christ, and it's all the like, I'm free to whatever. You know, like there's freedom in Christ and grace and all these things. I think that's true. What Paul is primarily talking about when he says that it is for freedom that Christ has set you free is like, stop worrying about keeping Jewish laws. That's what he's saying. Live free in Christ, free to enter, free to enter his presence, free to be loved by him, free to receive grace from him. Um, so look at um, chapter 4, verse 1 through 11. <clears throat> Man, am I going to go? Actually, let's go back a little bit further than this, because this is so good. Um, this is really, really cool. Um Okay, starting uh, chapter 3, verse 21. I'm going to read for a little bit. This is a really cool thing that I can still hear my uh, Greek teacher saying. And it was like, wow, that's so neat. So 3, verse 21. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the same kind of thing he says a lot in Romans. If the law could give us everything we needed, then we wouldn't need something else. But all of you people who love the law so much, I think is kind of what he's getting at here. Did the law make your life really great and you were able to do everything you wanted to do and feel you know, justified and free? No, you were miserable, right? You couldn't do it. So God knew he needed to, to like make a new way to break into that. The law did what it was supposed to do. It exposed our need for God. God has now made himself available in flesh. So we don't need to be reminded of what we need. We need him, and he's available. Does that make sense? It's kind of what Paul's building to. Verse 23. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. So here's the, the cool Greek thing I want to show you. Um, in my, I don't know how your translation says it, but in mine, in verse 24, it says the law was put in charge. That phrase, put in charge, um, is the same verse, uh, or the same um, Greek word, same Greek root word, as in verse 25, when it says, now the faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. So again, I don't know what your translation say, but mine says put in charge and supervision. That's a word that was used, um, it's paedagogos, which means like someone who looks after the kids. This is the babysitter word. So like even in old Greek literature, that would be like, we need to get a babysitter, a tutor, someone to watch the kids so we can go out and do our thing. So Paul is saying like, the law was just like a little babysitter till you could grow up. Now faith has come and you can be free. Isn't that cool? Now look at the next verses. There's one of those like um, paragraph breaks in mind with a new heading. Keep this together. Paul is saying the law used to babysit you. But now the faithfulness of Jesus has made known to us how to get to God. You don't need a babysitter. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So you can help run the household. Like if you're a son in a Roman household, until you grow up, you need a babysitter. But then like you're one of the men of the house. So you are all children of God. You don't need to be babysat. Grow up and claim your identity. Does that make sense? You're sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs, according to the promise. 
So an heir doesn't need to be looked after or kept out of trouble. An heir inherits every good thing that's available from the father, right? So now grow up, Paul's saying. Don't be babysat by this thing who has to show you every little right and wrong thing. You don't have to live that way. Live in Christ. He's done everything you need. Claim your inheritance. You're a child of God. I think that's so good. So good. Um, so it's not just that like um, there was a, a striving way that was stressful and we couldn't do it and now we're free from that. That's true. It's, it's that and more. It's that there was this thing you needed to be shown every step you needed to take because you were little and you hadn't fully seen everything revealed to you. You couldn't understand it. But now God came down in flesh amongst us and said, this is how it works. Come with me. Be free. Isn't that cool? I think it's so good. Okay. Um, he's going to go on in chapter 4 to do a lot of that. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. So he's going to go on and kind of build that application. I think it's so good. Um, so that is, yeah, end of chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4, the freedom in Christ idea. We are free in Christ because we've grown up into our inheritance and can now handle what he has to give us. So claim it all and receive it all. Look at um, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So again, Paul writing to these people where he's gone into synagogues and reasoned with them and said, Jesus has fulfilled everything that's on offer. So don't let yourselves be burdened by having to be a certain type of way. You have Christ. That's what you need. You don't need Jewish custom. You don't need Greek idol worship. You're free in Christ to be his. So it's for freedom Christ set you free. Don't be burdened again um, by a yoke of slavery. And then look at this next one. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. That's a lot. Um, so he's just like, fine, if you want to do this whole thing, then you go live with the babysitter again and let him tell you what to do and what to eat and where to go and when to wake up. Have a great time. But it's for freedom Christ set you free. You don't need that. That's cool how he's built that, I think, isn't it? Especially with that babysitter image. Like, you want to go back to that? You don't need that anymore. Like, you guys don't want to, you know, go back to what it was like when you were 10. You don't want to do that. Um, I love that. Love it. Okay. Um, last thing. Flesh versus spirit. Flesh versus spirit. Um, let's look at chapter 5, verse 16 through 26 a little bit. I'm not going to go through it all. We've just camped out there a little bit um, with church. You guys know this. But I love that coming at the end of this letter, it's not just, it's not just an argument for him of like, do you need to obey rules or not? Um, it's not, and again, the freedom thing isn't like, so now you do whatever you want. For Paul, the freedom thing is, it's not about being told what to do in every little thing because you couldn't handle more. And it's not about being a certain kind of ethnicity so you make sure you can claim God's sonship. God invites all of us to be his children because he gave Abraham a child supernaturally. Don't you think he could do the same thing now through Christ, who's his supernatural son that invites us to be with him? Look, we're in the family. So don't live by flesh, which would be things like circumcision, food laws, your ethnicity and background and bloodline. Don't live by flesh. Live by spirit. And then, of course, you know, Paul is not about, she lived by spirit, you do whatever you want. It's about if you live by the spirit, you better, he says, keep in step with the spirit. So this is still a call to holiness. The call to, to Christian freedom is a call to holiness because it means keeping in step with the spirit. 
but then the Spirit do His work in us, being sanctified, being drawn into more Christ-likeness. It's not freedom to be free and have fun. It's freedom to live under a new leader, in a new family, as heirs of the kingdom. And the kingdom has a certain way it operates, um, and that's keeping step with the Spirit. And when you do, He's going to produce love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, right? And so that's Paul's call. You're free, so keep in step with the Spirit, and that's going to unlock your life into all the things that you wish you had and all the things that are good for society. Um, and that's how it's going to um, kind of come to fruition. Uh, one last verse I want to point out to you because I think it's so, so, so good is, uh, well, there's two. Um, one is chapter 6, verse 6. Um, Paul says, Anyone who receives instruction in the Word must share all good things with his instructor. Um, this is a, I don't know, that word share in my Bible is usually an economic word. Um, so Paul here, it's kind of a little verse saying like, hey, have you been taught, have you, have you been led, people who are giving you discipleship instruction, share with them, like pay them a little bit, let them, let them experience some blessing for what they're giving their time to. This is one of the verses in the New Testament. There's a few places um, that kind of point to the thing that we do, you know. Um, doing Christian work as our vocation and receiving payment for it, which is such an odd kind of equation, you know, to live in, that you make your living off of people's tithes and offerings. Elliot asked about that the other night. Um, I forget what brought it up. We were talking about people tithing and giving and, you know, the stuff we were doing. And she was like, what happens with the money people give to church? You know, we were kind of explaining some of that. And she's like, so when the church pays you, Dad, where does that come from? I'm like, well, you know when you tithe, Elliot? that's where that goes. She's like, so I kind of pay you? Like, yeah, weird, huh? She's like, you kind of pay yourself? Yeah, weird, huh? It's a weird thing that we live in here. But there are some passages in the New Testament that kind of point to, hey, there's work worth doing in the church. And if people are really doing that, then it's worth you sharing with them economically. I mean, I just think it's good for us to know that. Sometimes I can feel weird about it. You know, like, what is this thing I do? Wouldn't I do it for free? Yeah, I would. But I can't. Ah, You know, I think this is one of those verses that's like, Paul saying, this is kind of how it can work well. Not the only way that people are called to do it, but a way. Um, then look at verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, his flesh, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So again, his call of like, you, you want to live a fleshly life? It's going to be miserable. You want to live a Spirit-led life? You're going to see all kinds of good things that God does in your life. And then I love verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good. Because doesn't it feel that way sometimes? It feels that way sometimes. That you're like, okay, I'm trying to live by the Spirit, trying to keep a step of the Spirit, want this fruit to be developed. It takes a long time. Sometimes it works. Nobody cares. <sighs> you know, you're just doing this kind of life. Don't grow weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people especially to those who belong to the family of believers. That phrase um, is probably the worst but, but most hopeful part of verse 9. At the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. It's not our decision what proper is, right? Um, because it's usually different. It's at God's proper time. Um, it's, this, it's similar to when we talked through Psalm 1 before, if you remember Psalm 1, where it says, Blessed is the tree planted by the stream. It will produce fruit in season. Like when it's the season for the fruit to come, if you've let God water you, the fruit will come. I think this is similar. Don't grow weary in doing good. For as soon as you do good, you'll reap a harvest. That's not what it says. At the proper time, 
when God sees fit, when he's ordering all of creation and all the world into his plan, there will be a harvest if you don't give up. I think it's a big deal. So hold on to that verse. Um, I think it's a good one. Um, one last one. I've told you now that there's one last verse, and that was my second one. Here's the, really the last one. Um, verse 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Um, that's another good one to just hold in your heart. I think it's such a good ministry verse, too. It's such a good Christian verse, but, man, for our life, man, I never boast in anything except the cross of Christ because the whole world has been crucified to me. I don't want any of it. Remember what he said in 220, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So what do I have to boast about? I don't even really have a life. All I have is Christ. Um, so that's all I'll boast in, which reminds me of a passage in Jeremiah, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows the Lord, that the Lord knows him. Um, so Paul's saying, he's claiming that verse now, but in Jesus. I'm not gonna boast about anything. Paul's a great orator. He's a great writer, a brilliant scholar, a strong leader, capable traveler, all that stuff. I'm not going to boast about anything except the fact that I know a guy who was killed by the Romans. That's the only important thing. Isn't that wild? Um, but I love that. Hold on to that deep. And, and that makes me think of something Jesus said. No servant's greater than his master. And if our master was the one who was taken and beaten and killed by the authorities because they didn't like what he had to say and they didn't give him a fair hearing and people lied about him, and none of it was right. That's what happened to him. And no servant is greater than his master. So God's going to, at the proper time, produce all kinds of harvest through your life, through your ministry. And it'll look all kinds of ways. Sometimes it'll be amazing. Sometimes it'll be impactful. Sometimes you'll be influential. Sometimes you'll be like the top of the impact fruitfulness world. And other times it'll be miserable. Most of the time it's going to be somewhere in between when you're faithful, slugging away. Some of it's difficult. A lot of it's boring. Some of it's painful. And you're just going. Don't grow weary in doing good. At the proper time, you'll reap a harvest. And we're following a crucified guy. And we're no greater than that. So I'll boast in that. If it's hard, we can boast in that. Because I'm more like him. Which is so hard to do and sounds so trite, but it's just the deep truth. You know, man, never boast in anything. Except the cross of Jesus Christ, through which the world's been crucified to me. And I to the world. Questions about Galatians, before we wrap that one up.